So uh, take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We're now going to get into the nitty-gritty here of Paul's argument um, on tongues and prophecy and the spiritual gifts. So 1 Corinthians 14, we're only going to look at the first five verses because I want to take some time, if you have the handout, and talk about prophecy and tongues before we get into this. Uh, But let's uh, open up with a word of prayer before we get started. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the cooler weather. Lord, we're thankful for those who are here this morning, uh, who faithfully show up each and every week to hear your word taught, Lord. Um, And we pray for those who are away, who are traveling, who are not with us, who are normally with us this day. We pray for your uh, protection over them and your uh, watchful eye over them. And we pray, Lord, for those who will be coming later to our worship service, Lord, we pray uh, that as we gather as a body to worship you, that uh, we will even now be preparing our hearts and minds to enter into your presence, to worship you, and to uh, do so in spirit and truth, knowing that the Holy Spirit is with us and that he will take our worship and bring it up before you. And we pray that it will be a pleasing aroma to you, O Lord. And now be with us as we look at this passage, Uh, help us to uh, gain understanding and to apply these scriptures to our lives in a way that makes sense. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I'll read the passage, it's a short passage, like I said, the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Okay, so as I said, this is getting into the nitty-gritty of our uh, study on the spiritual gifts, uh, which began back in chapter 12. Uh, Paul is just going down the list of questions that the Corinthian church has, and he comes up to the topic of spiritual gifts, or technically the word gifts, if you have a new King James and I is in italics, which means it's not in the original, concerning the spirituals, (laughs) concerning spiritual things. In the context, of course, we're talking about spiritual gifts. And he writes this, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 12, so that they will not be ignorant. So he's trying to instruct them because they are having issues with spiritual gifts. So uh, if you remember our little uh, roadmap that we talked about on this passage In chapter 12, he lays the foundation for the spiritual gifts, what their purpose is, where they come from, who are they given to. They're given to all. They're given by the Holy Spirit. They're uh, given diversely to everyone in the church, and they're given for the profit of all. The, The idea of each one of us receiving a manifestation of the Spirit is so that we will work toward the building up of the church. They're always, they're, they're spirit enabled, they're spirit given enablements. Spirit-given abilities, if you will, to the profit of the church. Okay? So that's the the foundation there. 
Then he illustrates that with the, the image of the, the, the unity and diversity of the body, how God has placed each one of us in the body as he sees fit, and we each have a role to play. So the giftedness is given to us. We are uh, spirit-baptized, God-ordained members of the body. So God, you know, we're not here by accident. We're here because God has placed us in this body, and we are to use our gifts in a way to benefit the body. We're not to be envious. We're not to look down on others. Uh, we are to work together for the benefit of the body because the body only works as well as its members work together. And then in chapter 13, which we looked at last time, he looks at then sort of, as I call it, the atmosphere in which the spiritual gifts operate. The spiritual gifts need to operate in an atmosphere of love or else they're useless. If you are the most gifted person in the world, if you have all of your gifts dialed up to 10, or if you've ever seen the movie Spinal Tap, dialed up to 11, if you have all of your spiritual gifts to the maximum capacity available, yet you do not exercise them in love, it's going to profit you nothing, you're going to say nothing, and you're going to be nothing. So you need love, and love is the greatest. That's what, he, that's what Paul argues here. If, if anything, you need to have love. It doesn't matter, again, a spiritual gift at the level of, let's say, one or two with love is a lot better than a spiritual gift dialed up to ten with no love. That's the point Paul is making here. Love never fails. Love is the greatest. Love is the atmosphere in which the spiritual gifts operate. And love never fails because it is the greatest. It will survive faith and hope because faith always looks forward. Hope always looks forward. Love will be there in the end when, when, the, when the age to come, when the perfect has come. We will not need faith because our faith will be vindicated. We will not be hope because our hope will be realized, but love will still be operating because we will be the bride of Christ living forever with her bridegroom in a relationship of love. Love will survive the spiritual gifts because prophecies, tongues, knowledge will vanish away, tongues will cease, prophecies will fail. But love endures. Love never fails. In other words, what Paul is saying is like, look, you are here desiring to have all of these great, showy, flashy gifts. What you ought to be doing is pursuing love rather than pursuing the flashy gifts. God will give you the gifts. Just work with love. And that's where Paul comes down to when he comes to chapter 14. Because now chapter 14, he's going to look specifically at tongues and prophecy. Why? Because those are the two gifts that the Corinthians were sort of uh, confused about. They valued tongues. They thought tongues was the be-all, end-all. They thought tongues was the, capital T-H-E, right, the manifestation of the Spirit. And when we looked at the book of Acts, we saw that, right? Every time the Spirit came upon a group of believers, they ended up speaking in tongues. We looked at three passages that way. So to the Corinthian mind, they said, if you are filled with the Spirit, if you are baptized with the Spirit, it shows forth in speaking tongues. Therefore, in their mind, tongues was number one. So Paul is going to see here, it's like, look, tongues is not number one. <laughs> right? I mean, he just flat out says it, right? Prophecy is better. And the reason prophecy is better is because prophecy can work toward the edification of all. Tongues, in order to work to the edification of all, needs to be interpreted. Otherwise, it's just for the edification of the one speaking in tongues. That's the argument he's going to make. So he's going to 
make the argument, look, it's better to prophesy than to speak in tongues. And then eventually, when he gets to the end of chapter 14, he's then going to address their problems in that church. So we'll worry about that when we get to there. But so since he's going to focus on prophecy in tongues here, I wanted to take a bit of time to talk about prophecy in tongues. What are they? Uh, because up until this time, I've in a sense resisted giving a definition of the spiritual gifts for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is because every commentary you read will give you a definition of the spiritual gifts. Some of them differ. They're, they're, there's a lot of overlap between them. But that's not the point Paul is making when he gives the list of the spiritual gifts in chapter 12. He doesn't give them to identify them. He gives them to show you how they're all manifestations of the Spirit given to the body for the benefit of the body. But he does focus on prophecy and tongues, so I think it's beneficial to look at those two gifts individually. So the first thing I want to ask is, what are tongues? What are tongues? Or what is the spiritual gift of tongues? The word there for tongues that you see throughout chapter 14 is the Greek word glossa. All right? If you hear the word glossary, you think of a glossary. It's a list of words, of definitions. That's kind of where the word comes from, glossa. And it has two basic meanings. It could mean the actual tongue, right? The part of your body, the organ of speech. What James will say in James 3 what a small member of the body the tongue is, yet it can do great things. Right? It's like a small rudder on a large ship. The small rudder can direct the ship wherever it wants, and so the tongue can, can cause a lot of damage. What a, what a great you know, forest fire is set by the spark of a, of a careless word from your tongue. So it can speak of the tongue as a member of, a body, of the body, or it can speak of a tongue as a dialect, a language. And that's the meaning here that we see throughout some of these passages that we're going to look at. So keep your place here and turn with me to Mark 16. Mark chapter 16. Now if you're using a New King James, which I think most of you are, you're not going to notice anything necessarily interesting about Mark 16. Unless you look really closely at verse 9, there might be a little footnote there. Now, if you have an ESV, I think one of you, I think, Lori, you're the only one here with an ESV. Is it bracketed? Are there brackets around from verse 9 to verse 20? Yeah. Okay. The reason being is this is, is a somewhat disputed passage in the Greek manuscript tradition. Now, this, this, is, this, is, a, this is free information, okay? It's not part of the lesson. It's just free information, <laughs> So you're, you, know, you don't have to pay me for this. Um, there, there's two different Greek manuscript traditions. I may have mentioned this before. The New King James falls out of one, and pretty much every other English translation comes out of the other tradition. And if you have an ESV, you may, it may say something along the lines of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20 or something along those lines, right? Is that what it says in the footnote? The earliest manuscripts do not, Okay. Now, if you have a New King James, it'll say that verses 9 through 20 are not in the original text of the critical text. That's what the NU stands for. They are lacking in two manuscripts, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts contain it. So there are two early manuscripts, two codices, 
uh, Codex Vaticanus, and you can just hear when I say it, it sounds like Vatican, that's where they found it, and Codex Sinaiticus, Sinai, it was found somewhere near Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now there's a story to that, it was like found in a trash bin, that's one, that's kind of like an apocryphal story, but the point is, these were dated to like the 4th or 5th century, but they were discovered in the 19th century. I think Vaticanus may have been discovered in the 15th or 16th century. The point is, is that these are complete codices. Codice is a book. It's complete codices of the New Testament, and they do not contain this passage. Now, here's the thing. It's only in those two that this passage is not contained. It's in most other manuscripts. Okay, so I only say that because what I'm about to read, some will say, well, you're reading from that disputed passage. We'll worry about it later. But it's in the majority of Greek manuscripts, which is why the New King James only puts a footnote, and the other translations put in brackets. But anyway, Mark chapter 16, verse 17. This is uh, Mark's version of the Great Commission. So starting in verse 15, he says to the disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And then verse 17, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. And it goes on from there. But here's the point. Mark is, records Jesus is saying that one of the evidences of the preaching of the gospel as you go out into all nations to preach the gospel is that they will speak with new tongues, okay? And that's what we see, in a sense, when we go to the book of Acts. Now, we've looked at these passages before in the book of Acts, but we're going to look at them again in this context. So, Acts chapter 2. So, again, Jesus says one of the evidences of the going forth of the gospel is that they will speak with new tongues, new languages, this is a familiar passage. We preach this on, uh, I preach this on uh, Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter 2, uh, particularly verses 3 and 4, where then there appeared to them, that is the group of 120 disciples as they are gathered together in one place, they, uh, there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And to further prove that these were new tongues, new languages, you go down to verse 11, and it talks about, you know, verses 9 through 11 talks about all of the uh, groups of various groups of people that were gathered together on Pentecost Sunday, these people who were in Jerusalem at this time, people from all over the Roman Empire. Uh, most of them probably scattered Jews. Some of them might have been proselytes. But in verse 11, it talks about how we hear them, that is the 120 disciples who were filled with the Holy Spirit, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the wonderful works of God. So this is not ecstatic gibberish. This, these are new languages that the disciples at the time did not know. And they were filled with the Spirit and they began praising God. And there was a group of people around that were gathered there on the temple court steps. And they heard the disciples praising God. This is, we hear them in our own language speaking of the wonderful works of God. You can look again at Acts chapter 10. 
This is, again, the time of Cornelius. The, the, uh, the, he was a centurion, a God-fearing Gentile in Caesarea. And Peter gets a vision, and he's called to go to the house of Cornelius and preach the gospel to them. So we see here in verse 44 of chapter 10, while Peter was still speaking these words, so Peter's not even done with his sermon yet. <laughs> he's, he's preaching to them. He's not even done with the sermon. It says, then the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Now Peter had some people with him, and it says, so, and those of the circumcision, Jewish brothers, who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Why? Verse 46, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So here Cornelius and, his, and the people who are with him there in his home, they hear the word of God, they, they are filled with the Spirit, and they speak forth in tongues, and what are they doing? They're magnifying God. Just like the disciples did on Pentecost Sunday, they, they were speaking of the wonderful works of God, here they are magnifying God. One more passage in Acts, chapter 19. Again, we've looked at this one as well. These are the disciples of John the Baptist who are in the city of Ephesus. And Paul encounters them, and he's talking with them. And he says, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? And the people there said, no, we have not heard of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, or Paul says to them, uh, and then in, in whose name were you baptized? He says, well, we received John's baptism. And then in verse 6 of chapter 19, let's just back it up to verse 4. So they were baptized into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. So when these God-fearers, these disciples of John the Baptist, heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. So they were Rebaptized, baptized with Christian baptism this time. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now there were about 12 in all. So again, you have filling of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. But the tongues here are new languages, languages that the disciples or whoever is filled with the Spirit does not know. The speaker does not know these languages. And we're going to see this again as we, you can go back to 1 Corinthians 14. We're just going to look at a few verses in this chapter 2, as well, I should say, in, in verse um, 2 of chapter 14, we read this. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. So the, the, the tongue speaker is not speaking to men. They, he's speaking to God. And, if, and, and we, you can even see that in the instances we looked in the book of Acts. They were magnifying God. They were speaking of the wonderful works of God. They were speaking in tongues to God. So Paul says, the one who speaks in tongues does not speak to men. He speaks to God. Why? Because no one understands him. He's speaking in a foreign language. Pop down to verses 13 and 14. Therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Why? Because no one understands him. <laughs> He's speaking in a language that no one knows. You need to have someone there to interpret. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Even Paul says, look, when I pray in a tongue, when I'm praising God in a foreign language that I don't know, my spirit is, is, is fruitful, my spirit 
praise, but my understanding is unfruitful. Why? Because I don't know what I'm saying. I'm filled with the Spirit, and I'm speaking in this foreign language. Pop down to verses 18 and 19. I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. So Paul is, I don't think he's boasting. He's just like, look, I've been gifted, and I speak with tongues quite often. Yet in the church... I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's going to be part of the argument that he's going to make that prophecy is better than tongues. Why? Because if I speak five words that everyone else can understand, that's a heck of a lot better than 10,000 words in a language that no one can understand. And then finally look at verses 22 and 23. Therefore, tongues are for a sign. If you remember, a sign points to something. What is a sign? Well, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So the foreign language, the tongues, is for a sign for unbelievers. In a sense, and we're going to look at this, it's a a sign of judgment. It's a sign of judgment. It's It's the same principle in which Jesus gives when he speaks in parables. His disciples asked him, why do you teach in parables? Everyone thinks that parables is a is way to make the, the teachings of Jesus more easily understood. And Jesus says, no. I speak in parables so that those who hear will not hear, those who see will not see. I am, in a sense, veiling the mysteries of the kingdom of God when I speak in parables. And tongues is the same way. Because if you look up at verse 21, Paul cites uh, Isaiah, I think it's uh, 20... 8, verses 11 and 12. With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. The tongues are a sign of judgment. They speak in tongues. Because he goes on and says, look, if, if all people are speaking in tongues and an unbeliever comes in, what's he going to see? He's going to think you all are crazy. <laughs> you all are, in, the word there literally in verse 23 is where it says out of your mind. The word literally means insane. So an unbeliever comes in, and if, the, if, again, you know, not all speak in tongues, Paul's not contradicting himself, but for sake of argument, if an unbeliever walks into the church and everyone in the church is speaking in tongues, the unbeliever is going to say they're nuts, he's going to turn around and walk out. You're crazy. It's a, it's a sign of judgment. Okay, so we've looked at some verses. Now I'm going to give you the Carl definition of the spiritual gift of tongues after all that. The spiritual gift of tongues seems to be the ability to speak in a language previously unknown to the speaker in order to speak forth praise to God. I'll repeat that again. The spiritual gift of tongues seems to be the ability, the God-given ability, to speak in a language, an actual language, previously unknown to the speaker, in order to speak forth praise to God. Tongues need interpretation. Paul's going to say that. Do not speak in tongues unless you can interpret the tongues. He'll get into that when he talks about their church meetings. Let two or three at most speak each in turn and let one interpret. If you don't have an interpreter for the tongues, he's going to tell you, sit down, And speak to yourself and to God. Don't speak in the church because you don't have an interpreter. So again, tongues refers to human languages. 
Now, there's some argument. It may refer to angelic or spiritual languages. We looked at this last time when we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, where Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I'm a little hesitant to to state that categorically because Paul here is speaking hyperbolically when he says that. The whole passage there, verses 1 through 3, is, is hyperbolic. He's making exaggerations because no one speaks with all the tongues of men and of angels. No one has all, knows all mysteries, knows all knowledge, has all faith. No one bestows, he's speaking hyperbolically, but some have taken it to, to indicate that there might be an angelic language. There might be a spiritual prayer language uh, based on 13 verse 1. It's also possible that the spiritual gift of tongues, that is, at least as it has been practiced in Corinth, some of it might have been counterfeit. Okay? Some of it might have been counterfeit. In other words, these, some of the ways they may have been speaking tongues in Corinth were sort of ecstatic utterances that were born out of their pagan origins. We saw that, if you remember, when we looked at uh, chapter 12, the first few verses there. Again, you can look there, chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And he goes on, he's like, you know that you were Gentiles. So he's talking about, in your past, before you came to Christ, you were carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. It's like, in your past, you were, you were pagan idolaters, right? You worshipped all kinds of weird gods, and part of those pagan practices could have been, and more likely was, sort of, the ecstatic utterances of sort of gibberish. Think of um, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when they're trying to get their god to ignite the, the offering there. They're, they chant all day long. They're chanting, chanting, and chanting. And, of course, Elijah's sitting back there kind of mocking this. Says, Why don't you chant a little louder? Maybe your god can't hear you. Maybe he's off relieving himself somewhere. Um, but it, it could be ecstatic utterances with no meaning. Now, that's, that's a counterfeit gift of tongues because tongues have to have a meaning, right? To speak in a language, whether it's a human language or not, still has to convey meaning. The fact that Paul says you need an interpreter indicates that whatever you're saying in a tongue has meaning. You're speaking words that convey meaning. they just not understood, which is why you need the interpreter. So it's possible that there, uh, some of these gifts in Corinth were counterfeit. Uh, MacArthur is of that opinion. Uh, we did look at the fact that uh, tongues is a sign for unbelievers of judgment because when you speak in a tongue and an unbeliever comes in and doesn't understand, they think you're insane. So that is tongues. Again, tongues is the spiritual God-given ability to speak in a language previously unknown in order to speak forth praise to God, and they need to be interpreted. So now we can move on to prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, there the word is prophetuo. Um, there's, you know, I may have said this before, right? You know, you, a prophet prophesies a prophecy, right? So a prophet is one who speaks forth. He prophesies, that's what he does. And what does he prophesy? He prophesies a prophecy, okay? So, you know, it's, you've got the subject, object, and the, the verb there. But prophecy, uh, this word occurs 28 times in the New Testament, and it means to speak forth by divine inspiration. It means to predict. It means to declare a thing that can only be known by divine revelation. 
Now, Old Testament prophets, they spoke forth new revelation by divine authority because they often prefaced everything they said by, thus saith the Lord. So whenever an Old Testament prophet is given a word from the Lord, he prefaces saying, look, this is not me speaking. I am speaking the words of the Lord that he gave me to speak. And he is speaking with divine authority. Thus saith the Lord. Now, New Testament prophets, at least the way they're depicted in the New Testament, aren't really quite at that level of the Old Testament prophets. I think the more equivalent, New Testament equivalent, would be the apostles. I think the New Testament apostles would be much closer to what you see as the Old Testament prophets because the New Testament apostles also spoke forth with the authority of God. They're the ones who provided us with the scriptures. They're the ones who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures, not the New Testament prophets. The New Testament prophets, as we see here in verse 3 of chapter 14, he who prophesies, what do they do? Well, they speak words of edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. So these New Testament prophets are still speaking, in a sense, a word revealed by the Lord, but it's a word of edification. It is a word of comfort. It is a word of of encouragement. So that leads me to suggest then that the spiritual gift of prophecy, here's my definition of that, the spiritual gift of prophecy is again the God-given ability to share encouraging insight that God has revealed. It is the spiritual gift given by God to share encouraging insight that God has revealed. It is not a thus saith the Lord utterance. It is not an infallible revelation. In fact, it can be wrong. Look at verse 29, where he says, let two or three prophets speak and let others judge. So when a prophet gives, a, when, a, when, a, when a New Testament prophet or when a person with a spiritual gift gives forth a prophecy, there are others there to discern what he is saying or she is saying. Okay, and, and, and it's not that the, the, the inspiration by God is wrong, it's that we, we may use the wrong words to convey it, we may misunderstand what that inspiration is, we may misinterpret what that misinformation is. Again, it's, it's the same thing, we've got the, the sure, infallible word of God, but as a pro- proclaimer of that word, I could be wrong if I misunderstand this. I can misinterpret this. I could be looking at it with my own grid and not letting the word speak to me. So it's nothing, it's not a fault with the word, it's a fault with the speaker. Now we should not eat, we should not see either the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy as normative today. Again, I continue to come back to this. It is not normative for today. It is not to be expected in the church today. Why do I say that? Because, again, Ephesians 2, verse 20, says that the church of God, the house of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And once you lay a foundation, you don't lay a foundation again. What do you do? You build on it. So once the foundation is laid, you start to build on it. And we have now a more sure word, right? We have God's word inspired word, written for us, preserved for us in our Bibles today. If I need to speak an encouraging word to you, I don't need to receive 
an inspiration from God. I can look at his holy word that is inspired, and I can speak an encouraging word to you. And if I need to proclaim the wonderful works of God in, a, in another language, I don't need the spiritual gift of tongues because many Bible societies do the hard work of interpreting and translating the scriptures into multiple languages. Groups like Trinity Bible Society and other groups that take the word of God and seek to propagate it to as many countries as possible so that they can praise God and, and pray, uh, sing praises to God in his wonderful works. So we have a more sure word now. We have the scriptures written for us, preserved for us, the, the inspired word of God. So that is why I believe it is not normative to hear tongue speaking and to hear New Testament prophecy. All right. With that out of the way and with the time that is remaining, and I have to now kick it into high gear. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. And really the theme that holds us together is that we should, it's in verse 1, we should pursue love and desire the gifts that edify the church. We should desire the gifts that edify the church. And again, we have to understand, the reason Paul is writing this is because this is not what the Corinthian church was doing. If it's what they were doing, he wouldn't write this. So in a sense, you can, you can kind of thank the Corinthians that they were such a kind of messed up group of people because it inspired the Apostle Paul to write these things to, hit to them so that we can learn from that, right? I mean, this church had a lot of issues, a lot of issues, all in one body of believers. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, even the churches in the, in, in the book of Revelation don't have this many problems. You know, they have like one or two fatal flaws, but this church had a lot of problems, but they were definitely a gifted church. So again, after extolling in verse 1, uh, after extolling the virtues of love that he, you know, so it comes right out of chapter 13, how love is the greatest, how love never fails, how, how uh, the spiritual gifts without love are nothing, are empty. Paul then says to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. That word pursue, um, it's used 28 times in the New Testament to, to mean persecute. It's the word that you see when uh, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are uh, you when, those, when other people persecute you. So in other words, in a sense, we're so, to pursue love so earnestly, it's almost as if we're seeking to persecute love. But we are to, it's not just, don't, you know, hey, you might, you might do well to be a loving church. No, he says, pursue it. Go after it. Seek it down. Hunt it down. Hunt down love so you can be a church that operates in an atmosphere of love. That's the first priority. And then and only then should we then desire the spiritual gifts. So if you're going to desire a gift, though, he says desire the gift of prophecy, especially. That word there, especially, uh, translates a Greek word that means to a greater degree. So desire to a greater degree the gift of prophecy rather than the gift of tongues. Their desire for spiritual gifts wasn't wrong. It's just that they were desiring the, the, the certain gifts for the wrong reasons. Right? They wanted, again, they wanted the showy gifts. Tongues is a showy gift, right? Someone is up there speaking a language that you don't know, and you're like, ooh, wow, that's, that's amazing. You know, that, that's, you know, he's really filled with the Spirit. They wanted to be up front. They wanted to be the flashy gifts. They wanted to be center stage. And Paul's like, no, desire love and the gifts that edify, particularly that you may prophesy. 
And again, note the order. Love first, then the gifts. Being gifted is wonderful. Being gifted is necessary for the church. Again, we're each given a manifestation of the Spirit, but it's for the profit of all. And without love, those gifts are nothing, and then we're nothing. If we're exercising our giftedness without love, then we become nothing. We become that sounding brass, that clanging gong. We, be, we become those people for whom uh, these things are no profit. So then, in verses 2 through 4, we see here Paul will start to lay the gift of tongues side by side with the gift of prophecy. As we see here, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So why desire the gift of prophecy? Because it's, it's better. It's better for the church. It's better for the, the, the building up of the body to have a gift that can be used to edify all. Because he says here, look, the, the tongue speaker, um, in Greek, ha, lalon, glose, the one who's speaking in tongues, he who speaks in a tongue, uh, is not communicating to men. We saw that, right? They are, they are speaking forth to God. They are filled with the Spirit and they are speaking forth to God. They are not speaking to men because if they were, the men would understand them. Now, it just so happens on Pentecost Sunday that you had people there that understood the languages that they were speaking in. That's why they said we hear them speaking in our own languages. So you didn't need necessarily an interpreter there because the, the, the apostles were speaking in a language that the people there knew. But in the, in the Corinthian context, the tongue speaking is more than likely a language that no one in Corinth knew. So you needed an interpreter. The one who speaks in a tongue is not speaking to men. Why? Because they will not understand. He's speaking to God. God understands because God is the author of language and God knows all languages. Now there's a debate in interpretation in verse 2 where Paul says, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. Um, There's a debate whether that should be like small s spirit, my own soul, my own immaterial part of me. Uh, the spiritual part of me, or big S spirit in the Holy Spirit. Um, MacArthur thinks that this is um, in the small S spirit, and he he would also make the argument that uh, the word tongue is singular here, but in verse 5 it's plural, tongues. So MacArthur will make the argument in here that this is counterfeit tongue speaking. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I mean, I, I, it's, I don't. I can see where he's coming from. I don't, I'm just not sure I, be, I, I follow that logic necessarily. But the point here again is is this person speaking in his spirit or is he speaking in the spirit, the Holy Spirit? And he speaks the mysteries. He's speaking forth um, mysteries, the, the things that, you know, uh, that, are, that God has, you know, previously has hidden but not, are now revealed. Um, I, I go with the smallest spirit. I think the New King James has it right here. Smallest spirit. He's speaking in his spirit. 
he is speaking spiritually to God. He's speaking forth mysteries to God. He's praising God in a, in a foreign language. But the prophet, the one who prophesies, is speaking to all men. That's what we see in uh, verse, verses 3 and 4. And he's speaking specifically words of edification. That's, uh, the word is oikodome. It's like building a house. So he's speaking words that, that build up, words that strengthen, uh, words that exhort or encourage or comfort, paraklesis, um, that speaks, that's the word, same word that's used of the Spirit as a comforter. So these are words of encouragement and words of comfort. So the one who prophesies is speaking forth these words that, that bring edification, and exhortation, and comfort to the people of God. And that's why it is preferred over the others. So again, the difference. Tongues edifies the self. Prophecy edifies the church. So what is the loving thing to do? What is the loving thing to do is to to use those gifts that edify the church. Again, Paul says in verse 19, in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding, five words of encouragement, exhortation, and comfort than 10,000 words in a foreign language that no one can understand. What's the loving thing to do? The loving thing to do is to edify the church, to use your gift to edify the church. So our, our, again, our pursuits speak volumes about our priorities. Are we pursuing love? Are we being, trying to be Christ-like? Again, chapter 13, um, we saw the, the, the portrait of love there, particularly verses 4 through 7, and that's a, that's a portrait of Jesus. Jesus is the one that is being spoken of there in verses 4 through 7. He is the portrait of love, and if we are loving, we are being Christ-like. And our goal is to be more Christ-like in our lives, not less Christ-like. And to be more Christ-like, to do the loving thing, is to bring um, edification to the body, not just to edify ourselves. What are our pursuits? And again, the Corinthians were pursuing, again, their own interests. Again, that's why they were pursuing tongues. They wanted the flashy gifts. They wanted the self-promoting gifts. They wanted the ones that put them front and center in the church. And Paul's like, that's not the loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to use your giftedness for, even if it's tongue speaking, and even if you have it to a high degree, to use that for the edification of the church. Which is why when he talks about the spiritual gifts, he, at, at the end of that list he says, to another has been given different kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. They're, in a sense, they're a matched pair. You can't have one without the other. You need them both in order to profit the church. And that's why prophecy is greater in verse 5. So after laying side by side prophecy and tongues, Paul quite clearly says tongues are better. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies uh, is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Unless, indeed, he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, he's not putting down tongues. He's not denigrating tongues. He's not saying tongues are worthless. In fact, he again speaks here with hyperbole. I wish that you all spoke with tongues. He's not contradicting what he says earlier when he says, do all speak in tongues? With the implied answer, no. 
because God has given many gifts, a multiplicity of gifts, into the body of Christ. So he knows not all speak in tongues, but he's just, in a sense, speaking like, look, if the, gift, if the Spirit gifts you all to speak in tongues, that would be wonderful. That would be a wonderful manifestation of the Spirit. But I wish even more that you all prophesied. Look, if, I'm gonna, if I want the church to be one whole thing, right, <laughs> to go back to his, his uh, analogy of the body, if the whole body is going to be an eye, let that eye be prophecy. That, eye, that prophecy would be far better uh, a gift for all the church to have than tongue speaking. Because he who prophesies is great. He's not saying the one who prophesies is inherently better than the one who speaks in tongues. He's saying the gift of prophecy is better because it, 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 it more naturally works toward the edification of the body. The one who speaks in a tongue, again, you need that, that extra thing. You need that interpretation. If you don't have the interpretation, the tongues then are, are worthless to the entire body. That's why he says, unless, unless you have an interpreter. So the one who speaks in a tongue is... is Again, it's not an inherent betterness. It's just, it's better. The gift is better for the edification of all. And tongues is only useful if you can interpret. And the word uh, there for interpret is, we get the word hermeneutic from it. Uh, and that's the art and science of biblical interpretation. And it comes from the word Hermes, who is the, the messenger of the gods. He is the one who spoke for the gods. So tongues are only useful if you can interpret. In other words... Interpretation is necessary to take what is personal and internal, what is only edifying yourself, what you know, only your spirit is speaking forth. You need interpretation and to make that accessible to everyone else so that they all understand. The goal is edification of the body of Christ. Verses 12 and 13, I'm peeking ahead in verse Chapter 14, even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. If you want your gift of tongues to be useful for the church, pray for interpretation, Paul is saying. And it goes all back, it all goes back to what we saw in verse 1. Pursue love and desire Spiritual gifts. Don't desire the spiritual gifts to feel superior, to feel special. Don't desire the spiritual gifts for your own self-promotion, for your own self-edification, but for building up of the church. Because that's why they're given in the first place. The spiritual gifts are given. They are manifestations of the Spirit given to each one of you for the profit of all. There, I did get through the, the five verses. All right, so again, that's where we're, that's where we're at here. Um, he's going to continue this argument in verses 6 through 19, which is, Lord willing, what we'll look at uh, next week on the 11th. Um, the argument there is that tongues must be interpreted. Um, and he's going to continue to uh, make this argument that, that prophecy is better than tongues, and then he's going to go on then really address the problems in the church there at the end of the chapter, how they are disordered, how they are uh, without harmony in the church there. But we'll stop here because we are about five minutes from, from time of worship.